People have so many different hacks for getting a good night's sleep. And it's not to say that those don't work, but I really think you cannot discount the power of just good quality sheets and how much that can transform your sleep. I told you guys about these before, but as far as I'm concerned, Bowl and Branch are the best sheets on the market. And I think for me, the thing that like makes them so good is that they're really soft and luxurious while also being breathable. So they kind of work in all weather and their signature sheets are their best seller. They come in 14 versatile colors in all sizes from twin up to California King. I have them in the color stone. I have them in the color mineral. I have the waffle blanket. I have so many things from this company. Everything is just quality and their sheets are made with the finest hundred percent organic cotton and completely free from toxins. Also, they said this, but I didn't really get it until I started using the sheets. They do get softer with every wash and you'll see that. I've gotten these as gifts for so many people and every single person has been a repeat customer. And there's a 30 night worry-free guarantee. So you can wash style and sleep in their sheets for an entire month. And if you don't love them, you can send them right back. Sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bolin Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use promo code CBC at BolinBranch.com. That's Bolin Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code CBC. Exclusions apply, see site for details. Hi guys, I'm Emma. And I'm Julie. And welcome to our White Lotus finale debrief. Hey Jewel. Hi Em. It's so classic that we're recording this at 7 a.m. on the dot because we're dying to talk about it, but also could not stay up past 10.30 last night. It's not just that I couldn't stay up. That episode was a lot of emotional trauma and I really needed to sleep it off to be able to properly talk about it. What a damn shame for Tanya to go out like that. It's really difficult to mourn the ending of a show. I know it's only till next season, but I'm in mourning and also mourn like a beloved character at the same time. Yes. And also because I think we all on some level knew that it was the quote obvious choice, but we were doing mental gymnastics in our head thinking that there was no way that Mike White was going to simplify it that much. So I had honestly ruled out Tanya and (laughs) now I'm just like, wow, that is really sad. I've gone so back and forth with it the whole season because I did – it's kind of like the undoing where it was so the obvious choice of what was going to happen that you had to convince yourself that it couldn't possibly be that because you had to think more about it. There had to be less obvious. It had to be something that you know never in a million years could you have come up with on your own. Part of that is also the way that season one ended. So I'd gone so back and forth with you know they're really clearly setting Tanya up to die. All signs are pointing to that but they must be wanting to trick us. They must be doing something else. And the whole time, it really it really was just what was going to happen. Well, what was really interesting, and I'm sure you all saw this in Mike White's post-episode interview, he's talking about how at the end of last season, Tanya tells Greg that she's had every treatment in the book and death is the last immersive experience she hasn't tried. So he's saying that he wanted to give her kind of an operatic ending, but it would have been too tragic for her to die at the hands of someone else and to go down without a fight. So her dying in the way she did was very Tanya, which when you look at it through that lens, it's absolutely true. It was very Tanya. And in some ways, you know, She was smarter than I think we maybe initially gave her credit for, yet she still can't get out of her own way. Tanya is the character that just frustrates you. And that's exactly as she lived is as she died. Like exactly the discussion we were having last week about how, you know, she's just so close to almost being there. Like she puts all of the dots together. She kind of knows what's going on. And then there's always something that leads to her either metaphorical or actual physical downfall. And that was what it was in this case. I mean, that scene is so frustrating to watch. She does what she needs to do. She puts everything together. She makes the connections. She knows exactly what's going on. She figures out how to get the gun. She kills everybody on the boat. 
And then her downfall is that she couldn't properly get off of the boat in the correct way. I mean, all she had to do was either go down the back stairs, take off her heels. There was no rush. Everyone on the boat was dead. And she had the gun. I know. And the frustration we both felt in that moment was overwhelming. And I think I looked at you in disbelief, as if to say that you knew something I didn't know when you were going to tell me that, that what I just witnessed didn't actually happen. I need everyone to understand. I'm sorry. We will get back to our regularly scheduled programming with this episode. I need everyone to have at least some understanding of what it is like to watch a TV show with you. (laughs) We are sitting together watching the finale. No one, except for maybe like a handful of people at HBO have seen this episode and know what is going to happen. And yet every 10 minutes, (laughs) she looks at me and she goes, Julie, Julie. What's going to happen? Just tell me. When Cam and Ethan are fighting in the water, I swear to God, she goes, is he going to kill him? Just tell me, please. I can't handle it. I just I just need to know. I'm like, no one knows. We are all watching this together for the first time. I just really don't like that feeling of being unsettled. It's like every time I do this, this is why I don't really watch that much scripted television because as I'm watching it, yes, I'm enjoying it thoroughly, but I'm also questioning why am I doing this to myself? Like there are so many things in real life that are anxiety provoking. Why am I paying HBO to make me sweat? It it feels like counterintuitive to my entire goal of not being anxious, yet I I voluntarily do it every week. You know, and you do it so minimally with with such a few amount of shows. And this episode, I think, happened to be far more anxiety producing than any other episode. Typically with White Lotus, I think it's anxiety producing because all of the characters are so hateable and they all at any given point are making either the wrong decision, you're watching their life somehow implode, um, you're on edge knowing their life is going to implode. Like you are constantly on edge in the episode because all of the characters just act in a way that you know is just so opposite to how any anybody should act or how you would expect somebody in a TV show to act. And and you can kind of see their lives mapped out where you want to tell them to turn right and they're always constantly turning left. This episode was just anxiety producing in general. Every single turn was like, somebody's going to die. You don't know what's going to happen. And so you're on edge the whole episode. So I think out of all of them, this one really gave you that feeling the most. Oh, it really did. Also, hands of God, Ethan and Daphne fucked on that island. What are you thinking? Yeah, I think I have so much to say about that. That's also why I love this episode before we get into that is because obviously Tanya's death is the main discussion point. But what's so great about the show is that you can have a finale where there's one major plot point that happens and it kind of wraps up the whole season. And yet there's still six other major plot points to discuss that have nothing to do with the the finality of the death. Well, yeah, I mean, there are a million side plots to explore here that I'm equally, if not more interested in than Tanya's death and everything leading up to it. I just think if I'm choosing, it's the Ethan, Cam, Harper, Daphne one that I'm probably the most invested in. And honestly, out of this entire episode, everything else aside, I would say the few minutes that were the most captivating to me is when Ethan and Daphne are on that beach and he tells her what's been going on and you just see her gears really start turning, processing it, and then immediately deciding how she's almost going to get even. To me, that was absolutely brilliant. That like 30 seconds alone was an Emmy-worthy performance if I had ever seen one. Like just A-plus acting. But let's, let's talk about the logistics of that scene, starting with what you were saying before. In your mind, do Ethan and Daphne hook up? To me, 100%, which before I explain my reasoning, what's your answer? 
I think so too. So remember how last week we were discussing that Cam is very much an upfront asshole. What you see is what you get with him. Whereas Ethan, we begin to think that he's this very nice guy. And then you start to realize, you know, he does have some similar tendencies to Cam, whether those are them rubbing off, whether they've always been there, whether those are results of some insecurities, whatever you want to call it. So when he walks off with Daphne, it wasn't even that in that moment I said to myself, oh, 100%, they're about to have sex. It wasn't until after the fact when he starts to get intimate with Harper again, and then we see them at the airport, and it's the first time the entire episode where there's that real affection. To me, that had nothing to do with him reigniting his feelings for Harper. To me, that was almost like he had to get in touch with this primal aspect of himself and had to really get one up over Cam in order to heal his ego and then be able to re-engage with Harper. So to me, it had nothing to do with you know suddenly him feeling this way about Harper again. It was so much more to me an ego thing about him being able to successfully battle Cam in like the quote ultimate way when it comes to male dominance. That was the way that I viewed it. Yes. Well, what's interesting is a couple of episodes ago when they are on the wine tour, Ethan says to Cam that he has this thing called mimetic desire where anytime Ethan likes a girl in college, Cam automatically just swooped in. And it was almost like this moment of Ethan and Daphne potentially hooking up that like really um, allowed him to have a full circle relationship with Cam. Because not only now does he have the money that Cam always had? He now has the girl that Cam had for at least a second. And he has this ability that Cam had when they were in college that Ethan never had, this ability to say like, you like a girl, I'm going to take her from you. And so it was, you're right. I think it was all about the masculinity there and, and almost conquering Cam. What's also interesting though, is that a huge piece of, the sexual relationship between Harper and Ethan is that it feels like Ethan can only get off to porn. And so what's really interesting about this scene is that it almost is like Ethan's acting out probably a porn that he watched. We're like, oh, he's on vacation. It's almost like a swingers thing. He then hooks up with his friend's wife, gets back at his wife. And like, there's also a part of me that thinks that Ethan was able to finally have sex with Harper in that way because he's just acting out a porn desire. So that's interesting. Almost like it's it's rooted in fantasy even though it's taking place in reality, you're kind of saying? Right, like I, I think that maybe part of the problem, because she says, Harper says a lot, like you're just not attracted to me. And I think maybe part of the problem was that it's not that he's not attracted to her, it's that they are not living out sexual desires in the way that he is used to, or there's a desensitization from porn that comes and plays a role in, in their relationship. And it's only once their sex life and his porn life almost merge where he's able to combine the two finally. Okay. So I think that I align with that. And then I would maybe add on that clearly I feel what we're seeing is that so much of his relationship to sex is influenced by the way that he feels he's perceived as a male by other males. And we're only seeing it for seven days. So we're only seeing that in terms of Cam. So I think that yes to everything that you said. And then on top of it, there was something about him needing to reclaim his masculinity. And the only way he knows how to do that is exactly to your point by like one up in Cam, by, by, pulling the ultimate move over him and getting back at him for all of those those years in college. And it's almost like it has nothing to do with him actually sleeping with Daphne. To your point, it's about him having the ability to sleep with Daphne, which was previously something that was reserved for just Cam. 
Well, what's interesting is that scene, if Ethan and Daphne actually did hook up, is about some sort of revenge, but not revenge on their partners. It's like, because to me, Daphne in that moment was more so getting back at Harper than she was getting back at Cam. And Ethan in that moment was more so getting back at Cam than he was getting back at Harper. Oh, I felt that they were both getting back at Cam. A little bit of both. But here's my thing, and I've seen this a little bit on Twitter as well, with Cam and and Daphne's relationship. It it kind of is what it is. Like, that's what we've seen this entire time. Like, something clearly works for them, although you've seen the cracks start to appear in this episode. But I think that for Daphne, the ultimate revenge is this relationship with the trainer and the fact that their son is not actually Cam's. And so she has, like, a lifetime of an ability to cope. You know, her thing is always do what you have to do to make it right in your mind. So I feel like in her relationship with Cam, it's not so tit for tat. It's not like every time he cheats, she has to do something. It's like she has lived her life and set up her life in a way where whatever he does, she has an answer to. Whatever he does, she's already t- she's already three steps ahead of him in terms of what she needs to make it all right. But Harper is the person where she confided in her. They had built this sort of relationship. And even if Harper was reluctant or not as nice to Daphne, I think Daphne clearly felt some sort of trust and camaraderie with her, especially when Harper comes to her after they take their trip and says, you know, I think something happened while we were gone. And Daphne reveals to her kind of the secret about their son. And so I think that in that moment, the wheels turning and processing are like, wow, I felt betrayed in this moment by somebody that I actually didn't think was going to betray me. Whereas with Cam, I know that he's always going to betray me because I'm always going to be there to betray him too. Right. It's almost like Harper, who she's only really known deeply for a week now, she holds to a higher moral ground than she's ever held Cam to. I guess that... For me, it wasn't so much tit for tat, like, all right, you slept with Harper, I'm going to sleep with Ethan. I think it was more so she now has that knowledge for forever, similar to she knows for forever that that child is her trainer's child. I think it's another thing that she was adding to the bank of greater one-ups. Right. And I think it it can also be both. What's interesting too is the scene where they're on the phone with their son and Cam clearly knows that that's not his kid. Yeah, he could not have been less interested. Although I guess you could make the argument that whether it's his son or not, he's just kind of an asshole. Yeah, but it, it was more than just being not interested. It was there was like an anger. Like he is flossing his teeth, listening to her on the phone with their son. He's saying, Daddy, where's daddy? I want to talk to daddy. And it, it's like you watch him, he's so angry. He knows he can't react. He knows he can't even let on to Daphne that he knows, let alone their son. And so he puts this face on and he goes back out and acts. That was the moment where you saw the cracks. That was the moment where this entire time we've kind of been operating under the assumption of like, maybe this all just works for them. Like maybe they have just cracked the code and they live life in a way where they each act on their own desires and, you know, They've just figured it out. Ignorance is bliss. But neither of them are as ignorant to the situation as they once appeared. And that was the point where when Cam is angrily flossing his teeth and he has to literally muster up the courage to go out and talk to what is supposed to be his son. You see, it's like, OK, it's it's not all as as easy and peachy as, as we thought it was going to be for the two of them. Yeah, I mean, that one brief moment was kind of just a metaphor, you know, to their entire relationship. Right. 
see for me, and I know we'll get into this at the end when we talk about season three and season three predictions, I would love to see Daphne on her own on like a girl's trip, maybe, or something that doesn't include Cam, because I think the scenes where she was on her own is the scenes where we get the most out of her and we really got to understand her character. And I, I think of, you know, I think one of the things with the season is that the, the women were really the victors, which is exactly as this was intended to play out, I guess, except for maybe Tanya here. But it would be nice to see like, Daphne, who I think was probably the real victor of the season, quote unquote, continue on into into season three. I would love to see that. Let me ask you, though, because one of the obvious fan favorites was Harper. Who do you think is more likely for a season to be built around, assuming they're only choosing one? Um, I think I think Daphne and I'll tell you, I think Harper was a fan favorite in the way that Jennifer Coolidge was season one. And so it would be very easy for her to, um, you know, transfer over to the next season, especially because so much of the way that we view the show and so much of the way that we view the characters are by their like individual lines and what becomes so quotable and memeable online and what becomes so discussed and Aubrey Plaza overall having this big moment. But I feel like her character almost rounded out at the end Like she did what she had to do for her marriage. Ethan did what he had to do for their marriage. They kind of end with this beautiful moment sitting in the airport. And it almost feels like for just a second, whether this is true or not, they're kind of healed. Like they did what they needed to do for their relationship. Whereas Cam and Daphne, they end the same way they started. Lying to each other, deceiving each other, doing what they both needed to do. And still putting on this front, whether it's real or not, that they are the perfect relationship. They're sitting in the airport you know, comforting each other, loving each other exactly as they started. And so I feel like there's so much more left to not to definitely both of their characters, but to Daphne specifically that we can continue on with the next season. Yeah, that would be my preference. Although there was no part of me that thought that that moment with Ethan and Harper at the airport was beautiful. The only difference between the affection that they were showing and the affection that Daphne and Cam were showing is that Ethan and Harper had this, you know, real vulnerable or seemingly vulnerable argument about it and then made, you know, sweet love to, to kind of solve it all. Meanwhile, they were both being equally as deceptive. Right. Like I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a beautiful moment, but it did feel more uh, like more of a conclusion to their characters than maybe other characters. Because I will say like the entire time that we've seen Harper and Ethan try and navigate their marriage and navigate their relationship with each other, it's been so built on this idea of honesty that was never actual honesty because they couldn't admit to each other what was wrong in their relationship. Like they were really honest about the things that they did and their, you know, day-to-day life, but they weren't honest about their feelings and Ethan's porn, you know, habits and the fact that they couldn't have sex with each other. And all of that finally came out and all of that kind of finally reached ahead. And part of that involved them sleeping or maybe sleeping or hooking up or doing something with other people. It feels, though, like they had to get past that in order to actually be honest with each other. And so maybe what their relationship is going forward is just actual honesty. Like they were actually finally able to break that seal and maybe they can have this real relationship. So it's almost like a fresh start for them where, yeah, it's not a beautiful moment, but it is kind of the first honest moment that they had. Yeah, yeah, I... I just don't see it like that. I think that they, they, both of them, if you really break it down, 
were like completely motivated by male validation, meaning Ethan, the only way he was able to get intimate with his wife again was to feel that he was able to, you know, get Cam's girl and get back at him. And, and, you know, that shows that he's on Cam's level. And then in terms of Harper, yes, we don't know exactly what happened in my belief, 1 million percent she slept with Cam. And of course, the way that she describes it is, you know, an advance by him. But in my mind, there was a part of her that was feeling deeply unwanted by Ethan's complete avoidance. And so she almost needed that experience with Cam to then allow her to get back in touch with even the ability to be sexy with Ethan. So I, I don't know. I, I almost think that if I'm choosing, not that I would ever want to be in either relationship, I almost think I may be choosing Daphne and Cam because at least the misery is is somehow wrapped in bliss. Whereas with Ethan and Harper, I think the next time that Ethan is in a situation where he feels inferior to another man, the same situation reinvents itself. Yeah. I mean, I think that's certainly possible. I also think it's possible that, well, let me ask you, not whether it's possible or not, but if hypothetically what went down, went down with Ethan and Harper and (laughs) they both acted in just a way that was clearly what was worse for the other person. Let of, of course we know that. But let's just say that going forward, that helped them move forward. Like that helped them get over this hump. That helped them refine their sexual relationship with each other. That helped them move forward as a couple. Does that change things for you? Or you think that's just an impossible scenario because this will just continue to be an issue in their relationship? I don't think it's an impossible scenario. I just don't trust that Ethan has the actual inner confidence to not be impacted by the way that he feels he relates to other men in the future. That's that's kind of what it is. It's not listen, I'm not above, hey, you guys want to go on vacation and you both need to sleep with your friends' spouses and it's this kind of strange arrangement but it works for you both, more power to you. You both did it, who am I to judge? That's not it. It's that I don't trust that this is an actual fix for Ethan. It's more Ethan than it is Harper. Uh, it's more that I don't trust Ethan's like actual feelings in himself. And I think that they are completely reliant on the way that he feels he's perceived by other powerful men that he may be at one time envied. Cam's not the only one. Cam's just a representation of that. You know, maybe he's the one that stuck out from college, of course. But as Ethan continues to kind of grow in his career, he's only going to meet more and more powerful men than Cam ever was. And then what does that look like? So I don't know. Maybe I just trust Ethan a little bit less than maybe I should. Who knows? That's just my, my take on it. I could absolutely be wrong. That was my that was gonna be my question, whether it's so camp specific or if this is something that continues to happen for Ethan, because we haven't seen him in any other scenario. We haven't seen him in any situation other than with Cam where an inferiority complex comes into play. And it feels like his relationship with Cam is so rooted in the version of Ethan that he was maybe during college or before he met Harper or before he made money, before he sold his company. Like so much of it seems so cam specific that it's hard to say whether or not he was in a situation in the real world where he maybe encountered somebody that was in a higher up position than him or had more money than him, if he would have that same reaction to them, or if this is just so deeply rooted in who Cam is as a person and what their relationship has been since before Ethan was the person that he is now. Right. And again, how are we supposed to know? I guess my gut feeling is that on some levels, it's certainly camp specific. I don't know if there's anyone that can mimic these exact feelings because 
you know, an experience you have in your past. And I would honestly consider the way that he felt about Cam in college slightly traumatic for him. I don't think that you can then mimic that by a future experience. However, I think for someone to be able to impact you in that way to this extent, I then don't trust that the next time you're screwed over in a business deal and you end up being super humiliated to the entire boardroom that you don't then develop the same inferiority complex with the guy that screwed you over. So I guess my answer is like, yes, I think it's camp specific, but I also think on some levels, not to the same extent, it could be replicated. Right. And that's a fair point. Totally. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing me with free samples. So I don't know if you guys suffer from allergies, but kind of a new development in my life is that I apparently do. I didn't used to, but in the last few years, I've noticed specifically as the seasons change that I start to have allergies. And to me, there is nothing more uncomfortable than that feeling of nasal congestion. Like you just don't feel like yourself. And I was really looking for something that worked because so much of this stuff doesn't work. And I found Astapro to be really helpful. So I think it could be for you too, if you deal with this kind of stuff. So Astapro is a first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24 hour over the counter allergy spray. And it starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24 hour steroid free allergy spray. And Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose and sneezing. By the way, that 30 minutes thing is real. And for me to have relief in 30 minutes is just a game changer. Get fast acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing and itchy nose due to allergies. So the weather is finally getting a little warmer. And one of the most fun parts about the seasons changing is kind of the wardrobe revamp that comes along with that. And if you're looking to update your wardrobe without spending a fortune, I want to introduce you to Quince because I really think that they do quality essentials kind of better than anyone I found. And I've told you guys about them before, but specifically as the weather is getting warmer, their linen dresses, like such an easy throw on, so comfortable, such good quality. To me, if you put on a linen dress with a pair of white sneakers, a little cardigan over your shoulders, to me, that is such a chic look. Also, their washable silk blouses. They are so comfortable, but you look so put together. They have great like scoop neck t-shirts, just comfortable, easy staples. Like that is what I like about them. I think that you can really build just a quality wardrobe collection with their essentials. And the best part is that all Quinn's items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. So by partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and then passes those savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. Get warm rather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash CBC for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash CBC to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash CBC. I'll tell you one thing. Lucia made out like a fucking bandit. And you know what? I, I know it's weird to say considering it really was Albie that got a little bit screwed over in this deal. More his father than anything else, but I guess Albie on an emotional level or a trusting level. I don't know. But as she should have, like I, that was the perfect ending for her. Yeah. I mean, listen, she played her cards right. Was it done in a very deceiving manner? Absolutely. But she went into this week with one goal and one goal only, and she made it happen, which you may not agree with it, but I think you at least got to hand it to her. And if you want to look at it from this perspective for a second, which may feel ridiculous, but just bear with me, like 
maybe this was a relatively inexpensive lesson for Albie to learn. Meaning, of course, it's 50,000 euros, a lot of money, absolutely. But to their family, not really. It's his dad's money, not his. And maybe this will show him to not be so trusting. You know, I think the reason that I personally don't have as much sympathy for Albie in this situation, especially given how I felt about him as a character throughout the last couple of episodes, is because he has played this role of the good guy this whole time. Until it comes time for him to ask his father for something, and he's so willing to throw his mother right under the bus. And he says to his dad, if you give me the 50000 I'll put in a good word for you with mom. This whole time, he has been so clear in the fact that he didn't like the way that his father and his grandfather viewed women, treated women, and yet it comes time for him to do something that really is in his own self-interest. Yes, of course, you know, he kind of feels like he's saving the wounded bird and swooping in and being the hero and giving her this money so she can escape this pimp in her life and she can live free, but there is a part of him that expects that this is all going to happen and then he's going to continue a relationship with her. That's really the motivating factor here. And so in order to get what he wants, he betrays his entire character and throws his mom right under the bus. Right. And that is a perfect illustration about how the entire theme of this season was sex and the power of sex and how it can really be so blinding. Because here we have Albie, who's I think one of the characters that we probably regarded as the most morally sound of the bunch, immediately abandoning everything that he knew to be true and morally sound and consistent with his character and who he is, just because he is so taken by sex in a way that he's never had it before. And so yes, ultimately the price he ended up needing to pay wasn't terrible. It wasn't awful. But if you go back to last week when I was saying what I thought one of the death predictions could be, which I was so off, is that we always knew that Alessia was never Lucia's pimp, but in my mind, I thought that Albie thought that. And so I thought there was a world in which Albie was going to kill Alessio in the name of, quote, saving Lucia, which then would have screwed him because then he's the one going to jail for this woman who was actually using him the whole time and never had a pimp in the first place. So if you look at it, he came out relatively unscathed, but you're totally right. In the process, he abandoned you know, his loyalty to what was or so we thought the most important woman in his life his mother what's so fascinating about this season and the overall theme of sex is that while for all the men in the show sex is their downfall bert says when he's talking you know our achilles heel is our achilles cock like for all of the men sex is the thing that ends up putting them in a position that <laughs> essentially interferes with their life or ruins their life or it, uh, does not allow them success. Whereas for all of the women in the show, sex is the thing that allows them to come out on top. Harper is able to use sex to her advantage to get what she wants from Ethan and repair her marriage. Daphne is able to use sex to get whatever she needs, whether it's from Cam in terms of you know, their own marriage and their relationship, or whether it's from her trainer in terms of getting her revenge on Cam, or whether it's from Ethan in terms of getting her revenge on everybody. Like sex is such a powerful tool at her disposal. Lucia and Mia, no one, no one in the entire show used the power of sex better than they did. And that's why it's so fitting for them to be the ones that really come out on top here and really make out, like you said, like bandits, because they understood the game and they played the game better than anybody. Yes. And specifically with them, they recognize how all of the men put sex on a pedestal. That for them, 
sex actually isn't the most important thing. It's just the thing that they know is the most important thing to the people that they're dealing with. And that is the difference between them and and pretty much everyone else on the show. They are actually not as taken by sex because it is, it's their career. They view it in a very different way. They view it, I think, from what we're seeing, almost as a means to an end here. But they're also hyper aware of the way that it's viewed by the people that they're interacting with and having that awareness. So being able to engage in the activity without allowing the activity to completely take you over, I think is what makes them such powerful and dynamic characters. And I think that's the link in terms of the normalization of sex work that is being seen in this show where, you know, obviously for them, it's it's money that they get out of sex. But I think the understanding of the show as a whole is that sex is never just sex. There is always something to get out of it. There is always some, and listen, obviously that's not the case in every single relationship, but what the show is representing overall is the way we as a society view sex and whether, and and the way that it plays into our lives and the way that it plays into our relationships and I think every single character in the show has this complex relationship with sex, but at the same time, really, or at least the women specifically do, which is such a you know clear difference between men and women as well, know how to use it in the way that's going to benefit them the best. Right. And I think that's something I really appreciated that the show did is it almost flipped the narrative to show how empowered one can be from the act of sex when fully acknowledging the power that it holds over certain people. Right. Well, there's a weakness of men there. That's a common theme throughout this too, where I think that especially in movies and TV shows, although I would say that this is is kind of flipping, but so much of sex that's portrayed in, in media is from a male perspective or it's, it's just sex and as simple as sex. Whereas what we're exploring here in this episode is really the way that with men specifically – sex has this power over them. And as we talk about, you know, with Ethan and Cam and their the power dynamic in their relationship and Ethan feels so inferior to Cam and Ethan will continue to have this problem throughout life where he, you know, potentially could encounter different men and feel this intense inferiority complex to them. None of that <laughs> compares to the power that sex seemingly has over them, which is just such an interesting dynamic in the way that the men in this show continue to operate. So you take also, for example, Albie, Bert, and Dom, and you've seen the way that for generations, sex has controlled their lives, both in their inability to stay faithful, but also in their inability to actually accomplish what they want. For Albie, it's that he is so craving this relationship and he so thinks that he can be this you know, superhero that swoops in, but sex is his downfall. And for his dad, for Dom you know, sex was his downfall in the sense of he just couldn't help himself from cheating over and over and over again. But now you see him alone sitting in this hotel, wishing that he could have what he, you know, lost in the first place. It's just very interesting to see sex used as more of a uh, means of power over men and more of the ability to do that from a woman's perspective and the way that it doesn't impact men and women the same. 
Right. And what I also think is super interesting is that if you look at the DeGrasso's, to your point, sex impacts all of them. However, their level of awareness to that decreases as the generations go on. Because there's Bert who will basically tell anyone who will listen that that's his biggest issue. There's Dom who's openly admitting it. And there's Albie who I think really has consciously separated himself from his dad and his grandfather in so many ways. And in a lot of ways, he is very different. His means of doing it isn't as you know deceitful in, in nature. But it's his same as Achilles heel. In Bert's words, as he put it so eloquently, you know, his Achilles cock. Like, Albie has the exact same thing. He just has spent so much time separating himself from it that I don't think he has that same awareness that Bert has. So then you end up kind of almost asking yourself this question. I think we would all say Albie's probably a better guy than Bert ever was. But at the end of the day, maybe Bert is just more, you know, outward in understanding his weaknesses than Albie is. Well, which is why that moment at the end was so important where they're at the airport and that woman walks by and all three of them turn and look at her as she walks away. And it was just this connection between all three of them. Yes, they handle it all differently. And yes, each generation is a little less aware and maybe is a little uh, different in terms of what sex means to them and how they choose to view women and how they treat women, obviously with Bert and Dom being more similar than Albie. But this idea of the control that sex has over their lives or that they allow sex to have over their lives. That's the link between all three of them. And so they turn and look at this girl walk away. And it's this understanding of three generations of men who are all trying to not be like the one before them all have this exact same reaction and all are connected to the one before them. So Mother's Day is coming up. And I know sometimes it can be difficult figuring out what to get your mom because Realistically, no gift is going to do justice for how much you love and appreciate her. But I'm sure you've done the classic, you know, bathrobe, candle, sweaters, gift cards. If you're looking to mix it up, I want to tell you about Aura Frames. So they were named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter. And it's just the kind of gift that is guaranteed to bring joy because realistically, there's nothing our parents love more than seeing us. So for them to be able to see more of us, even if you don't live close by, like that is probably the best gift you could give a parent. They're Wi-Fi connected. They come with unlimited storage. So you can share as many photos as you want from your phone to your mom's frame. And it's easy to set up. It takes about two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app. We have one in my kitchen. And every time my dad comes down for breakfast, like it just makes him so happy. There's pictures of me, pictures of me and my parents when I was little, pictures of my grandparents. Like I think as a parent, you never get sick of that. And it's just the kind of gift I know she will love. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code CBC at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Let's talk about baby making for a second because it's really not as simple as it's made out to be, meaning there's just factually a lack of knowledge surrounding how to get pregnant. And kind of, you know, for many of us, we spend our lives trying to prevent unwanted pregnancy that when you do want to conceive, there's almost a lack of understanding and resources, which is why I want to introduce you to Frida Fertility. Frida Fertility is the only one-stop shop that makes it easier to make a baby with a set of solutions for everything from egg and sperm health to ovulation tracking to conception aid. And basically what Frida is doing is simplifying the journey to parenthood with products that help you go from trying to making a baby. And their products are innovative, easy to use, accessible, from ovulation prediction to at-home insemination kits. They're kind of revolutionizing the conception aid game with the at-home insemination kit, which is almost, you can think of it as like a modern, effective solution to the turkey baster. This is baby making simplified. 
Find Free to Fertility on Amazon, Target, and select CVS near you. Not that I wanted anything to happen to Portia, but for Tanya to go and her to come out relatively unscathed was <laughs> really something to see. Portia was by far the most frustrating character. Oh my God, what are you doing? You know, to me, it is significantly more frustrating to watch a character that is going against what they know is their better judgment than to watch someone who is just blissfully unaware of the situation. Because Portia's initial blissful unawareness turned to a genuine sense of caution, yet she continued to put herself in that same situation. And like, she just got off on a technical, basically. Like, she just happened to get lucky that Jack miraculously had a change of heart and he wasn't going to follow through with the plan. But to watch her continue to put herself in that situation was so infuriating. Yeah, and I wonder if if Jack was ever going to actually follow through with the plan or if the plan all along was to get her to the airport. I'm not 100% sure. I'm a little bit confused there, but... <laughs> There's so many logistical things with Portia's character, especially being stuck in this situation where it's like, you know, you're so aware of the fact that something is so off and yet you keep kind of making the wrong decision. But also you can understand like she just doesn't know what to do, which is also why it's so frustrating to watch her is because you are sitting here and you kind of do know what to do. You're like, you're saying like, you know, you have to have a credit card on you. I am sure that you can get a cab or I'm sure Panya will you know, reimburse you given that she's alive, or I'm sure that you can figure out a way to get back to the hotel without having to get into the car with Jack, who you are actively scared of by the time that you get into the car. And then not only are you scared of him by the time you get into the car and agree to it, you confront him once you're trapped in the car with him. And so every turn was, was this combination of you're doing the most stupid possible thing. But at the same time, like I can see that you're not doing it because you're choosing to, you're doing it because you don't really know what to do. But it did seem like watching her, you're like, there's so many other things to do here. Get help, call the police. Like, you know, she was kind of acting like, yes, she was in a foreign country. Yes, she didn't know where she was, but she was almost operating as if she was stuck in the middle of nowhere, no civilization, no one to ask for help. And it it wasn't the case. Right. And also, how do you have the wherewithal to understand that most likely he was the one that took your phone? You then are quick enough to see when he goes to the bathroom, you're going to take his to call Tanya, yet you decide to take the phone call mere steps away from him coming back and you put yourself in a situation where you can't even see him coming. Like, <laughs> I, I understand it's a TV show. It's just that if you want to watch this through any sort of logical lens, it is very, it is very frustrating to witness. The thing with Portia is that as frustrating of a character as she is, and as you watch her and you're so frustrated by her continually making the wrong choice at every turn, you know, choosing Jack over Albie, going on, you know, this trip with him and and trusting him in a way where it's like, you just met this guy. Like, how are you going to go off with him in a place that you don't know without knowing how you're going to get back and, and, and just not having a plan in place? And we see this kind of chaotic, indecisive, doesn't know who she is, character reflected also in her fashion choices, which obviously have fallen under a lot of criticism and albeit are just so terrible, especially rounding it out with her last outfit with a scarf over a baseball hat, like just a perfect ending of just terrible outfits. Those outfits are purposeful. They represent who she is as a character, who she is as a person. And she just doesn't have life figured out yet. She doesn't know what she wants. She doesn't necessarily know what the right decision to make is. And so what you're seeing here as frustrating it 
frustrating as it is, and it almost appears like it's a plot hole, it's actually just representative of where she is in her life, trying to really navigate it and figure things out. Even in that last moment where she is at the airport and she is back with Albie and she kind of realizes the error in her mistakes and Albie tells her, oh, did you hear that somebody drowned and, you know, all of these dead people were found on a yacht? Like, in that moment, she's got to say, wow, I, I think that's probably, that's probably Tanya. Like, my boss is dead. And instead she goes, can I actually get your number? Like, it's still just this continual, like, it's just trying to figure out who she is or, or figure out what the right move is or, or or just doing against her better judgment at every single turn. And I think that's just, I think it's supposed to be representative of her as a character. I think it's supposed to be representative of her as a young girl in her twenties, just trying to navigate life. Yeah. I mean, I understand that there are aspects of her character that are meant to be relatable as this younger person navigating these kind of larger than life scenarios that she would have never been in in the first place if Tanya wasn't her boss. Of course, I understand that. I think that what I was really zoned in on and was maybe my biggest takeaway was the fact that she wasn't listening to her gut because not everyone is fortunate enough to achieve a place of clarity where they even can access their gut. Like being able to access a gut reaction in my opinion, is already you have one up against most people in a situation. So when you have it and then you choose to go against it, I think that was honestly the main source of my frustration with her. It's like you've got half the battle. You've been able to zone out all of the noise and really check in with what you feel to be internally correct or incorrect, yet you are still going against that. And I think if I was choosing a, a lesson in all of this, it's like if you – if your body is telling you something, you have to trust that your intuition in that respect is correct. Of course. like the, it, it, And it is a good takeaway. It's just, you know, sometimes you end up in a situation. And I think that's also what Portia was kind of dealing with, where it's so illogical. Like how illogical for Portia, this young girl from California who came with her boss on just what was supposed to be a trip to Italy. And all of a sudden you find yourself off on a foreign island with this whole idea of like there could be this major murder plot taking place with you know potential like italian sicilian mafia and you're like the whole plot of it is is so illogical from portia's perspective as a young innocent girl who had no idea what she was getting herself into and so while she's also navigating figuring out what is going on and kind of knows something's wrong at the same time, it's crazy to say out loud. Like, you know, I think she almost gaslit herself into like, okay, obviously this Jack boy is not going to murder me. Of course, Tanya isn't about to be murdered on a yacht. Like there has to be something more logical at play. And so even though all of your senses are telling you get out of this situation, I think there's a part of her that's trying to override that with her own logic of like, no, there's no way I'm even in this situation. Like it's my mind and my imagination running away with things, which is also something to kind of, figure out where there's a way to be cautious and not put yourself into scary situations, of course, but then you also don't want to be like an alarmist maybe. And I think that's also what Portia kind of is is struggling with where it's like, I've never even been close to being put in a situation like this in my life. Pretty much no one has. Why would I assume that this is what's happening here? Yeah, but I think that there's an aspect about this and I really do not mean to make it all about gender because it's not. But with this particular scenario, I think that there is a, a thing that happens where women are meant to think that some of their reactions are overly emotional and not rooted in logic. So sometimes the overcorrection to that is to maybe do the thing that goes against your instinct. And to me, watching this, 
like one of my biggest takeaways is that female instinct is very powerful and it exists for a reason. A lot of times to get you out of a scenario that a lot of people may not even realize is off in the first place. And if you can get in touch with that, take it and run with it. And I think who's to say if her not going with that is because she actually just lacked the wherewithal in the moment or because on some level, and I know this like going deep, just follow me. And I, this could be a little bit out there, but I kind of think it, it is a little bit legit. It's like this almost societal overcorrection to not fall into this stereotype that we are so at times fearful of becoming. You know what? You got to fucking abandon that in moments like this. If you feel that your life is in danger, take that and do not worry how emotional or, or overdramatic you may seem. Because you know what? What's the worst case? You dramatize it a little bit and now you have to pay for a four-hour cab. Better that than than the alternative. Oh, absolutely. And that is absolutely the logical thing that you should do in that circumstance, especially, especially if you're in a place that you don't know. I, I, I guess – and listen, for – like I said, Portia is an incredibly frustrating character because it is so easy to watch the show and say, what is wrong with you? Like, do anything else. Like, do literally do anything else but besides get in this car or take this phone and fucking run as far as you can and figure out how to get out of here without getting in the car. I guess the point, and this is exactly what we were kind of saying with Sammy last week, where she was saying, no, no, what would you do in that situation? Like, actually, you are put in this exact same situation of Portia. What would you do? Do you stay the night in the hotel with him? Do you try and get out? Do you try and find the cops? Like, I guess what the the lesson or what they're trying to show is as logical as it seems from an onlooker perspective is how illogical it can feel in the moment when you're put in a situation like that if you were ever, God forbid, to be. But yeah, I agree with you. Like, for me personally, I think that that um, intuition is so powerful and I don't necessarily know if in Portia's exact situation it was necessarily worried about like a societal view or like a societal thing that made her not want to overreact in a certain situation. I think it was a lot more fear-based than just not knowing what to do. But yeah, I think that definitely plays a role in terms of sometimes not listening to our instinct or not wanting to overreact in a situation. But the, the thing I wanted to say to Portia was like, if there was ever a time to overreact, now is it. Take it. Fifty high school senior girls descend on Mobile, Alabama every summer to compete for a massive cash prize. It isn't Survivor. It's one of America's most lucrative scholarship competitions for teen girls. It's been around for seven decades. Now you'll hear what took place behind the scenes. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery comes the competition. Host Shima Oliai was Nevada's contestant 20 years ago. Now she's returning as a judge to find out what two weeks with 50 of the country's most ambitious teens can tell us about girlhood in America. What happens when the competitors are thrown into the deep end with the best and brightest? And how does surviving the competition prepare them for everything that comes after? Follow the competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of the competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. People have so many different reasons for wanting to learn a new language. Maybe you have an upcoming trip or just want to pick up a new hobby or a skill or just connect with a new culture. I know for me, when I was abroad in Barcelona in college, I'm not going to say that I was fluent in Spanish, but I definitely got to the point where I felt really confident conversing. And when I got home, my dad said to me, Emmy, if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. And he was so right. Like I entirely lost it. 
So Rosetta Stone has been really helpful for me. So if you are in that same boat or you want to learn a new language completely, want to brush up your skills, whatever it is, I want to tell you about Rosetta Stone because they're the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it really kind of immerses you in the language that you want to learn. So first of all, they're the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. So they immerse you in many ways. First of all, there's no English translation. So you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which in my experience, I know I'm getting it when I start to think in the language. It's an intuitive process. So you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences, and it's designed for long-term retention. Also, in terms of speech recognition, they have a built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation and it's convenient. So desktop and app options with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. And it's an amazing value. You're getting lifetime access to all 25 language courses Rosetta Stone has to offer for 50% off, which is a steal. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Comments by Celebs listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash comments. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash comments today. What a moment. You get dropped off in a Range Rover in the middle of Italy by a random airport and have your phone thrown out of a car. Like, what a story that's going to be when she gets home. That was like one of the craziest pieces of of the whole thing. I, I I can't even handle the fact that that happened. I can't even handle the fact that after all is said and done, her final resort was to just wear the ugliest possible outfit to the airport and ask Albie for his number. It felt like so perfectly full circle and so perfectly you did not learn anything almost this whole trip. I know. I can't fucking believe Tanya is dead. I'm sorry. I, I just am having a hard time getting over it. I understand. It makes sense. I agree with what Mike White said. I, I get the vision. I get it all. It's just when you watch Tanya in that moment, she has her shit figured out. She is so sharp with those shots. She knows what she's doing. You know, she takes on this confidence and this and this capability and, you know, she's willing to put everyone to shame. And then it's fucking hitting her head on the boat that takes her out. I mean, that is so annoying. <laughs> Also, like, I guess my question is, like, kind of a dramatic, like, extended vacation for a murder plot. Like, they could have taken her out one day and thrown her overboard. Why take her to the Palazzo? Why take her to the opera? Like, like, why spend so much time with her just to kill her? Like, obviously, of course, they're, you know, paid by Greg. And there was this, you know, whole idea of, of, you know, really making it seem like such an accident. But it could have been an accident without this whole, without this whole trip. No, of course, and and naturally, some of it is you know we got seven episodes to fill. But going back to the theme of sex, like one of the ways that I think they got her the most taken by all of this is the night with Niccolo or whatever his name was, right? Like even that was a tactic that they knew would be powerful over her. Right, and just that male validation in general. And even though she knows, you know, of course, that that they're gay and, and she's having so much fun with them, mainly because of that fact, it's almost like male validation without threat for her. Um, she still allows it to kind of control her her moves and, and her better judgment. And, and you know, it it takes her over where this promise of a really good time and so much fun and, and this rich lifestyle that she, by the way, already has on her own is so much more enticing to her than anything else. And it was ultimately her downfall as well. Just, I wonder what season three looks like without her. I really do. I'm, I'm having trouble picturing it. 
And just one thing before, before season three, to your point, like in terms of the theme of sex of it all, it's not only the power that sex has over her and the way that she was so able to be taken by that evening. It's also in Quentin and their perception of the power sex has over her so much to the point that the way that they were going to lure her was this, you know, hot man that gave her this amazing night. That's who was going on the boat with her. That's, that's their whole master plan because in their mind, you know, she's similar to Albie, similar to everyone else in the show, willing or not willing to be blinded by sex. What they don't realize is that she caught on before that was able to be a possibility. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, to season three, I don't know. I have a very hard time imagining what it will be like without her, although I could certainly get on board with the season built around Daphne. I just have no idea. Like really, really no idea. As we say, as we say in Passover, next year in the Maldives, right? <laughs> Money Shana, baby. I, I do think that would be such a, a perfect location, and I really do hope that that was a a clue that that's where it's going to be. And with with Daphne specifically, you know, I saw um, Connie Britton gave a quote to Dateline about having how she was maybe supposed to be in, in season two and they had developed a character for her and she's hoping to maybe bring it into season three now. So I also think it would be really interesting to bring back somebody from season one that skipped season two and bring them into season three. I also think that what I love about what Mike White does and what the casting does in this show is that they've unearthed so many gems for us. Like for example, Aubrey Plaza is such a perfect character. And I think that if you've been following her career, you know that for a fact, but not Everyone has known Aubrey Plaza in that same way. And she was really introduced to us in such a specific way. And so I think that that was such an unearthing for her career and giving her such a moment. Megan Faye, for example, I don't think most of us knew who she was. And now she is so present in our minds and such a talent and somebody that like we cannot even imagine a TV show without now. And so I think that's something that's so special about the casting is that you it's hard to predict who it's going to be because yes, you throw some really big players in, you throw some really famous, famous actors and actresses in, but then you also have people that you would have never in your mind been able to come up with who could be in it, who end up being the star of the show. And so I'm really excited to see who that becomes in season three. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the most fun parts of the show. It's of course increases a person's fame and relevance, but also it increases like the public camaraderie around them as an actor. And, and to me, that's really fun to watch and, and to be a part of really, not only to watch, I actually, yes, it's fun to watch, but it's also so fun to know that you are an active part of, of, you know, the enthusiasm over this particular person, aside from their character, you know, just them in terms of their acting ability. I'm looking at Sammy's recap thoughts. I just, I just pulled up her story and she also wrote next year in the Maldives, which is so funny. Yeah. That, oh, from your mouth to God's ears. Oh. I'm so sad it's over. Yeah, that was really fun. I'm really glad we did it. I know, wait, I, just to make something clear, like I fully recognize there are podcasts that do scripted TV in a way that we do like Kardashian breakdowns and that is not us. It will never be us. By no means do we think that we are at that level nor do we try to be at that level. This is just one of those situations where it was so fun. We had so many thoughts. The DMs were exploding. Honestly, there didn't seem to be that much going on news-wise this week. So our plan for, for the rest of the week is we really want to do an episode on My Unorthodox Life, which we'll probably do midweek and any stories that go on, Kardashian or otherwise, of course, we'll talk about there if, if they're overly relevant. But 
I think sometimes you got to be willing to just change it up and go with what seems to be the overwhelming public opinion. And this seemed to be the overwhelming public opinion. So <laughs> one thing I knew for sure when we went to sleep last night is that we would be waking up at 7 a.m. absolutely chipped, ready to get on this mic. And that is what we did. I couldn't have done anything else but this episode. And even if there were a lot of news stories, I can promise you that 75% of the episode would have been this anyway. And there just weren't that many news stories. But also like, I think one of the beauties of pop culture and dissecting pop culture and talking about it is it doesn't just have to be a news story. Like the thing that was the absolute biggest discussion this week in the past couple of weeks has been White Lotus. And I think that as pop culture fans, we constantly are searching for these moments, like we always say, of the camaraderie of the internet or the camaraderie of everyone around us and what everybody is talking about. And this was just so clearly it. Even to the point where we were hanging out with your dad last night, he was like, I didn't know there was a murder in the show. We're like, you watched? No, no, no. We're sitting there. We find out that my dad's best friend from Brooklyn, since he was four years old, Net, the last guy you would ever expect to watch White Lotus. He is so in. He's loving it. He hasn't watched the finale yet. And we're like, it's in 20 minutes. You're going to watch. Who do you think is going to die? And he looks at us like as if we had two heads. He's like, what are you talking about? What do you mean someone's going to die? <laughs> we're like, are we watching the same show? I'm like, it, that it was- starts with that. I'm like, it's the first what? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, I wasn't paying attention. To that. I didn't even realize. I'm like, wait. He's like, I'm like, imagine how fucking confused you would have been if all of a sudden you're watching the show for the good time of people being on vacation and it ends with a murder. He goes, I don't understand. We're like, what do you mean you don't understand? We don't understand now. You don't understand. Oh my God, that was so funny. Yeah. It goes to show you also that so many different genres of people can really enjoy this. You don't have to have any sort of pop culture interest. Well, that's what I was going to say is really interesting, just to wrap it up, is that I've seen a lot of people say that they've enjoyed season two so much more than season one, which I think is so interesting because, I mean, not that you need season one to understand season two, but I think that the style of the show and um, the the overall themes and just the baseline understanding of what Mike White is trying to do, I think that season one plays a huge role in season two. And it's so interesting to me where... I feel like season two was maybe more enjoyable for people because they were actually able to view it as just all of these couples navigating a vacation. Whereas season one, it was an entirely different vibe of a show. You almost had to get it a little more, whereas season two, you maybe can watch it a little bit more passively. Yeah. And I think that's maybe why it was a more, or at least for me, a more like enjoyable viewing experience. It's almost like you had the blueprint laid. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was like that was really fun. I feel like that went by so fast. I don't have long. I could have spoken about this yet. for seven hours more. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Okay, well, we love you guys. We'll be back later this week for our unorthodox life episode and anything else going on. Isabel and I will be back for Bravo. And thank you for listening. Thank you for letting us do this. This is so much fun. Bye.